0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: I think that one of the ways that we remain mindful of the strangeness of these texts and the fact that in English translation, we are at least a couple steps removed from those texts in their kind of ancient language. One of the ways to be mindful of this is when you are looking at biblical texts and when you are trying to study, don't limit yourself to one translation. That's one really important principle, I think, if you're not working in the original languages with these texts.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash That's patreo dot com Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Professor Eric M. Vanden Eichel. He's associate professor of religion and the Forrest S. Williams teaching chair in the humanities at Ferrum College. He's the author of But Their Faces Were Looking Up, author and reader in the Proto-Evangelium of James, and is the general editor of the Journal for Interdisciplinary Biblical Studies. He lives in Roanoke, Virginia. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Magi, who they were, how they've been remembered, and why they still fascinate. Dr. Eric Den Eichel, welcome to Things Not Seen. David, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I just want to say at the outset to all my listeners that I've been teaching biblical studies, New Testament, Old Testament for a while, and I'm always looking for books that take the complex work of the scholars and condense it down in a way that is understandable and opens the hood, if you will, on the engine of how we get our texts and how we read these texts in the academy. I just want to say your book, The Magi, is fantastic at that. It did such a good job of taking all of these complex ideas, the mechanisms of how texts are assembled, the mechanisms of how scholars look at things like grammar and translation and really gave it to readers in a way that that they can begin to participate in that process. So before we do anything else, I just want to say as a teacher and a learner, thank you for this book, because I think it's fantastic.
1: Oh, thank you so much. That was one of the main goals in writing it. And so if it's if I've achieved that goal even a little bit, that's a huge compliment. Thank you so much.
0: And so where we're going to be going today, and again, I'm just wanting to orient our listeners, is we're going to be talking about a group of people that show up very briefly in the New Testament, but there's so much sort of added layers that have been put on them. And we're going to be digging into some of those layers today. But the, these characters are known as the Magi. And I wanted as a way of getting us into the conversation for you to read a short passage from your book, The Magi. So if you could go ahead and do that now, that would be wonderful. So this is, yeah, from the end of chapter
1: three. What then can we know about Matthew's Magi? Aside from what is highlighted here, probably little, but perhaps this is the point even for the ancient reader. The various texts surveyed in this chapter coincide in a few places regarding the various people called Magoi, and yet these texts are far from univocal in their respective portraits. As it turns out, there is no widespread agreement in the ancient world on who and what Magoi were and how they should be understood. They are powerful and mysterious, and as a category, they are separate from what is considered normal or mainstream. Their presence in Matthew may well be in tended as a bit of a surprise to readers the
0: suggestion that the story they are reading may not be the story that they were expecting and that is our guest eric vanden eichel reading from his recent book the magi who they were how they've been remembered and why they still fascinate so i want to begin to dig into this passage that you just read for us and the place where i want to start is this distinction that is being made between ancient readers And contemporary readers. And I want to take it in passes. So, one of the things that you do in your book, The Magi, is you begin to talk about this friction that happens between the way that a text is written in the distant past and the way that it's received now in the present. And you point out, unlike some texts, like, for example, a Taylor Swift song, we could go to Taylor Swift and say, hey, this song is great. What did you mean? But when we go to an older text, like the book of Matthew, Matthew is not available to us in the same way. So maybe let's start talking about when we talk about ancient readers, who are we talking about and what are we talking about?
1: That's a great question. I like the Taylor Swift analogy. One of the reasons why interpreting a Taylor Swift song, it's a great it's a great analogy. So we can if we're looking at something from her most recent album, which is amazing, by the way. We're looking at something from her most recent album and songs are texts in many ways. And so we're going to pose a hypothesis for what that text means. And in many ways, we probably are fairly confident that we know what that text or song means because we are occupying the same sort of cultural brain space that Taylor Swift is occupying. And so we understand her references. We understand these sorts of things that she's putting into her songs. With ancient texts, we are dealing with, I mean, Matthew was written, you know, 2000 years ago, give or take a few. And so we're dealing with an author who is in a really, really, really different cultural space. If you imagine the number of just inventions that have, that have come to exist since Matthew wrote and the way that we share information, I mean, what's happening right now, we're talking to each other. I'm in Virginia, you're in Illinois. And Matthew doesn't know anything about Virginia or Illinois or Zoom, right? And so all of this is a very, very, very different world. And so when we're looking at a text like Matthew, we often forget how different that world is. In in many ways, we forget that because of the translation effect, right? We are reading, most, most readers in the context that you and I are familiar with are reading Matthew in English. And so When you're reading Matthew in English, all of a lot of these issues are solved, right? Well, what is a magi? Well, it's a wise man or it's an astrologer or whatever your English translation says. Wise man is something that's familiar to us. Astrologer is something that's familiar to us. And so to kind of go back and then rediscover the strangeness of Matthew's story and to say, let's think again about all of these things, this term in particular, let's think again about what exactly... Matthew means by this and really acknowledge from the forefront that what he means by this is probably not
0: something that we have considered before. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Eric Vanden Eichel about his recent book, The Magi, who they were, how they've been remembered, and why they still fascinate. Well, in the answer that you just gave me, you started to touch on a concept that I think will be helpful for framing this for our listeners. And I I forget exactly the wording, but it's sort of like when we're talking about a Taylor Swift song or when we're talking about the things that the writer of the Gospel of Matthew were drawing from, you use a phrase, something like a kind of cultural encyclopedia, like all of the available knowledge that could be possibly accessed in the creation and the reading and hearing of the text. And then from that, we take kind of subgroups of knowledge within this cultural encyclopedia. The first thing I want to do is, have I understood the concept correctly? And if I didn't get the wording right, can you reword it for me?
1: Yes, absolutely. So the cultural encyclopedia is a concept that was formulated and promoted by the Italian novelist and literary critic Umberto Eco. And I discovered this work of Echoes when I was in my graduate program and working trying to figure out how I was going to read ancient texts. And I found it to be really helpful. But yes, a cultural encyclopedia, if we think about this, it is an extremely vast body of knowledge, right? So essentially, all knowledge that is available to us at any given time. If we wanted to use a helpful analogy to kind of whittle that down a bit and say, okay, let's actually think about what this looks like. Just think about the Encyclopedia Britannica We had one on our shelves. Nobody has them anymore because we have Wikipedia now. But if you think about the Encyclopedia Britannica or like the World Book or something like that, that could be an analogy for the cultural encyclopedia. Now, unless you were a very diligent child, you likely didn't read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica, but there were certain things within it that you were familiar with. And so If you were going to sit down and then write a story that was drawing from pop culture references or just your knowledge of the world, somebody in the future might look and try to understand your story by by comparing that story with, let's say, your Encyclopedia Britannica and saying, what parts of this was this author familiar with? And in many ways, though, if you think about this as an exercise that happens 2000 years in the future... It is still a hypothetical exercise, right? This person mentions roots or something. Were they familiar with the entry on oak trees? Maybe not, but they certainly were familiar with something related to trees or plants or whatever. So figuring out not only what Matthew's cultural
0: encyclopedia looks like, but what pieces of it that he is drawing from. Well, and then that helps us to then think about what it means to make a distinction between ancient listeners, ancient readers, and what we might call more contemporary or modern readers, one way that we might think about that is the people who were contemporaneous with the writing of Matthew had one particular type of cultural encyclopedia. We have a different set of cultural encyclopedia. Some of those pieces might overlap, but some of them might be vastly different. And what fascinates me especially is you mentioned that as books began to be copied in the ancient world, there were certain things that were never copied because the expectation was, well, everybody already knows this. So some of the things that were contained in that cultural encyclopedia have become invisible to us. Now, these are my words, not yours. Have I got it right, or would you say it in a different way? Oh, absolutely. I think that there
1: is a sense that when we're writing things, you know, who is Matthew writing to? Well, Matthew is writing to, I mean, that's a great question in biblical studies, who is Matthew's audience? But really, Matthew's audience is comprised of people like him and people in the first century. And so he is including in his story the details that he needs to make for an interesting story. But there's a number of things that he doesn't really feel the need to write because he assumes that his readers already know this as kind of a common knowledge. So for example, now and this example is changing in more recent years, but when I'm in the classroom, I often make Harry Potter references, right? Now we're moving away from Harry Potter. We won't get into that. But when I make a Harry Potter reference, if I said something seven or eight years ago in a classroom and said, you know, teaching at this college is a lot like teaching at Hogwarts, students would chuckle. Some of them would anyway. And then I would just move on because I wouldn't have to explain that. But now if I went in today and said, teaching at this college is a lot like teaching at Hogwarts, many of them would cock their heads and say, what what do you mean by that? Well, that's a piece of my cultural encyclopedia that I'm familiar with that they are not as familiar with. And so I then would have to pause and say, oh, this is the school for wizards in the Harry Potter book series, right? So, but what we have to include and what we have to explain
0: differs according to who we're talking to. Now, this sets up, I think, the question that I want to leave us with as we go into our first break. And we'll dig into this as we continue in our conversation. But I want to lay the groundwork here. So if we have two different cultural encyclopedias, one from the ancient world and one from our contemporary world, there's one kind of school of thought that might say those are pretty much identical because humans are humans and we all relate to things the same way. There's another school of thought that says, no, they're so alien from one another that they have no overlap whatsoever, and we really can't understand what these earlier authors were meaning or thinking of or referring to. My sense from reading your book, The Magi, is that you want to place the needle somewhere between those two extremes. It's completely transparent to us. It's completely alien to us. But my question to you is, where do you put it on that spectrum? Is it dead in the center between transparent and alien? Is it closer to the transparent side or closer to the alien side? Oh, man, that's a
1: big one. Everyone fancies themselves a centrist, right? That's uh, I'm a middle-of-the-road kind of thinker. I, no, I think that's I think that's accurate. I think that what I'm trying to go for is a middle position. I do think that there, there are certain things that we can probably talk about as things that are unique enough to human experience that we can think in, ter- in those terms and say, yeah, this is a kind of human emotion. I'm not going to go out on a limb and, and postulate as to what any of those are right now because I don't know any off the top of my head, but I'm sure they exist, right? But then again, yeah, when we think about some of the most basic elements of human experience today and what we think about as human experience, what is a person? What is marriage? What is God? What are what all of these things? Those are alien enough that we really do have to do that kind of legwork. So my position, I think, is that when we think about things that are happening 2000 years ago or things that people are thinking about 2000 years ago, I like to try and find Those concepts that are similar and then to say, here is our experience of this concept and then be able to articulate the ways in which that concept and people's experience of that concept in the ancient world might have been a little bit different. So if we take marriage, for example, right, what is this? Well, you know, in at least the the context that I'm speaking from, when I talk to my students about marriage, they are thinking about this as when two people are in love with each other and they want to spend the rest of their lives together. They make this agreement and et cetera, et cetera. And then when we take that and say, okay, so this concept of marriage does exist in the ancient world but here's all the ways
0: that it's different, right? And the social contract and arranged marriages and these sorts of things. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Eric Vanden Eichel. He's Associate Professor of Religion and the Forrest S. Williams Teaching Chair in the Humanities at Ferrum College. We're speaking today about his recent book, The Magi, who they were, how they've been remembered, and why they still fascinate. We'll be back in a moment. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Dr. Eric M. Vanden Eichel. He's Associate Professor of Religion and the Forrest S. Williams Teaching Chair in the Humanities at Ferrum College. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Magi, who they were, how they've been remembered, and why they still fascinate. Well, in the first segment of the show, we began to lay out the kind of big picture pieces, that this is a text, when we encounter the Magi, it's in a text in the Gospel of Matthew, which is a text written 2,000 years ago, maybe by people who had a different set of cultural encyclopedia from the cultural encyclopedia that we have as contemporary readers. And that gives us now the grounding to begin to ask this question. Okay, Dr. Van den Eichel, this word, Magi, or magoi in the Greek. When we start to talk about that, we might think we know what that word means, but why don't we?
1: Yeah. Well, and I think I'll point the finger in many ways at our English translations again, and this kind of need to make things nice and smooth. I grew up actually not paying much attention to biblical translations that I was using, sort of just grab whatever's on the shelf. But what many of us grew up, with a translation of these figures as wise men, right? Wise men from the East, or some translations say astrologers. And then some translations just leave it untranslated, like I have in this book, just magi or, or magi. So when we look at this word in the ancient world, and we look at how it's used we find that it's just simply a lot more complicated and so when matthew is using this word um, and by complicated i mean it's sometimes used as a an accolade of sorts this person is a real magos a real professional right or or sometimes it's used as an insult like this sturdy magos on the corner tried to sell me a <laughs> tried to sell me a spell to to cure my whatever so, when Matthew uses this word, I think the first thing to realize is that all of these English translations that try to specify their identity and smooth it out a little bit, like an astrologer or a wise man, or in later traditions, the kings, right? All of these attempts lose how loaded and how context specific this word is. Let me give you a quick analogy. So, if I was going to tell a story that started out as with me looking out the window in the morning and I say, I looked out the window in the morning and there was a man standing on the street corner. That's one story. And so, well, where's this going to go? And if I look out the window and the other version of the story is I looked out the window and I saw a lawyer standing on the corner. Well, is a lawyer a professional in our world? Absolutely. Are lawyers good? Well, it depends on which one you're talking to and it depends on why you're talking to him, right? So if there's a lawyer standing on my street corner, That story might be going in the direction of and he knocked on my door and told me about a rich uncle that I never knew I had. (laughs) Or he knocked on my door and told me that I was surprised you don't actually own your house anymore or something like this. Right. So so that terminology of lawyer sets up this expectation of, oh, man, what's about to happen? And I think Matthew's
0: off to something similar in this story. I love that analogy. And what that does is it shows us, again, what we were talking about in the first segment of the program today, that there's a lot that is freighted on us as readers to understand what a single word might mean. And it doesn't necessarily have a one-to-one meaning or a one-to-one indication. It opens up possibilities of interpretation instead of shutting them down. But now I want to take this in a slightly odd direction, because as I was reading your book, The Magi, and as I was reading about how the Magi are framed in the story of Matthew and then in later interpretations that are layered on top of Matthew, the thing that kept coming to me again and again was a completely non-Christian set of sources. I was thinking about Socrates and the Sophists and the way in which the Sophists play as the kind of enemies, but also at times the allies of Socrates— and the way in which, you know, depending on how you are reading the sophists in these, base, in these platonic dialogues, you could get very different meanings out of what the dialogues are telling us. Now, I'm making a parallel here between the way that the sophists in the platonic dialogues function and the way the magi might be functioning in the book of Matthew. And I want to ask, as I give this to you without any preparation, does it feel solid? And if it does, what could we begin to learn from that kind of parallel? Yeah, no,
1: I think it's a I think it's another great analogy and I think with that example of the sophists, right, it doesn't even very much also depends on if you're reading a story how you feel about Socrates to begin with, right? If somebody is an enemy of Socrates and you don't particularly like Socrates, then maybe, maybe these emerge as good characters as admirable. With Matthew, yeah, I think taking the story as in that first century context, I think how people are understanding his designation of these people as Magi very much depends on the types of things that they've read. And so the types of stories that they're familiar with, if they're not reading, they're, you know, people are familiar with oral traditions. Are they familiar, for example, with, with stories that are told by Herodotus about the rise of King Cyrus, the Persian King Cyrus, who you know Magi are involved in this and they are involved in the exchange of power? And in Herodotus, they're not wholly positive, but they're but I would say that they're not negative characters either. They're just they're they are what they are. Or do you have somebody who is, let's say, approaching Matthew having knowledge of the New Testament book of Acts, because in the New Testament book of Acts there are two magi. There's Simon and there's another one named Bar Jesus who also goes by the name Elimus, and both of these characters are wicked. They are not admirable, and the author. Is very clearly talking about their practicing magic or their being Magi as an insult. And so let's say you are a reader who is approaching Matthew having just read Acts, and you are, you know, behold, Magi from the East came to Jerusalem, and you're reading Acts and you've just finished reading Acts. You're going, well, this is, this spells trouble, right? These are, these are bad guys. These are tricksters. They're coming for some unsavory purpose. And that's very different if you've approached if you're approaching Matthew as somebody who is well versed in the stories of Herodotus to say, okay, the Magi are coming to Jerusalem. This probably spells trouble for Herod, but they're ultimately fine. No, no trouble's gonna come from this for Jesus.
0: I'm so grateful for the way that you just framed that and, and the way that you talked about the fact that the Magi are not just showing up in the book of Matthew, but also showing up in the book of Daniel, the book of Acts these other places, and in the extra New Testament writings as well, the people that were writing in the what we call the patristic period, or the kind of the centuries immediately after the New Testament was written. But one of the things that this highlights is what we've been talking about throughout the conversation. So as contemporary readers today— we can go to a Bible and it's all bound together and it's easy to flip from the book of Matthew to the book of Acts to the first and second Chronicles or the book of Daniel and to think that we can jump back and forth and begin to build a field of meaning around this term magi. But as you point out, that wasn't the case for readers at the time of Matthew or writers at the time of Matthew. We don't know whether or not they had access to these other texts. And if they did, in what way they would be ready to hand, we might say. And so talk to us a little bit about you mentioned earlier this notion of smoothing over the meanings and really making things simplified. How should we be on guard against that importation of the ease that we have to go from text to text when thinking about an ancient text like the book of Matthew?
1: Well, the obvious answer is that you need to learn Greek, david. I mean that's that's the easiest, No I'm just kidding, of course. If you have the resources and the means to learn Greek, then that's great. But for the vast majority of people, that's actually not not a workable solution. I think that one of the ways that we remain mindful of the strangeness of these texts and the fact that in English translation, we're getting, we are at least a couple steps removed from those texts in their kind of ancient language, one of the ways to be mindful of this is when you are looking at biblical texts and when you are trying to study, if you're somebody who does Bible studies, these sorts of things, don't limit yourself to one translation. That's one really important uh, principle, I think, if you're not working in the original languages with these texts. So if you, for example, are looking at Matthew 2, 1 through 12, the story of the Magi, And let's say you have four or five different English translations that you use as your kind of go-tos, and you'll encounter minor little differences of grammar and these sorts of things. But let's say with a story like the Magi, one translation says Magi, one translation says wise men, one translation says astrologers. Well, if you've got three different ways of rendering what seems to be the same word, then what you're dealing with there is a word that is not easy to translate. The same thing can be said when you're looking at like the letters of Paul, right? Well, is Paul talking about justice or is Paul talking about righteousness? Well, those are the same word in Greek. And if you look at different translations, that word changing uh, among those different translations should be a red flag to say, okay, there's something else going
0: on underneath the surface here. Let's investigate further. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Eric Vanden Eichel. He's Associate Professor of Religion and the Forrest S. Williams Teaching Chair in the Humanities at Ferrum College. We're talking today about his recent book, The Magi, who they were, how they've been remembered, and why they still fascinate. Well, this might be a good time for our listeners to really kind of lay out the bare bones of what Matthew gives us about the Magi, because my understanding is, that we all think we know what this story says and is about. But why don't you give us, in its limited sense, just what Matthew is giving us? What should we know about these characters from the Matthew text? Yeah, when I talk to students about this story
1: and when I talk in other kind of settings about this story, I always start by asking people to tell me everything that they know about the Magi. And, you know, some groups will generate things like, well, they're from Persia. They are named these things. There's three of them, of course, and all of these details. And then what I like to do is actually read Matthew's story. And people are often surprised that Matthew's story is a lot shorter than they remember. And there's a lot less there than they remember. So when we are looking at Matthew's story, we have very basic details. So the Magi are coming from the east, literally the risings. So the place where the sun comes from, that's where they're coming from. And they come to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, they only say one thing in the entire story. They say, where is the one who's born, who has been born king of the Judeans? For we saw his star at his rising at its rising and have come to honor him. And then we get Herod and the city is, they're all panicked. Herod, calls for his advisors and says, where is the anointed one to be born? They say, Bethlehem. Herod says, go, come back and tell me where he is so that I can go honor him too. I'm always interested in a new king in town. So then they go, the star reappears, leads them to Jesus. They rejoice, they offer their gifts, and then they're warned to not go back to Jerusalem. So they go by a different road and then they go back home by a different road and then that's it. That's the entirety of the story, obviously coming from my memory of it. So if I left that a little detail, but then the, they're mentioned directly after, right? With Herod's mad at the Magi have tricked him. And so then there's this slaughter of the children. That seems to be a different story that is um, sort of being told with them as a detail, but it's the story's not really about them. But yeah, that's it. That's the entirety of Matthew's
0: story, the Magi. And there was something in your explanation of this that I want to flag for listeners as well, because this becomes an important subtext in your book, The Magi, and you use the term King of the Judeans rather than King of the Jews. And if you could just briefly explain to us why you used that word choice as you were describing this to us.
1: Yeah. So most modern English translations are translating that word as or that phrase as King of the Jews. And I and I made the conscious choice to say king of the Judeans. So obviously, same word in Greek is the word. And when we look at how this word is used in ancient Greek texts, there's a there it is used in different ways. So sometimes it is very clearly used to speak of the land of Judea. And then sometimes it is used to speak of you specifically the people who inhabit the land of Judea or the people with with a sort of ethnic tie to the land of Judea. There's an ongoing debate in biblical scholarship on whether we should be translating this word as Jews or as Judeans. I am, you know, again, everyone loves a centrist. I consider myself to be right in the middle to say, well, sometimes I think it makes sense to translate it as Jews. But sometimes I think in this case, as a great example, I think that it makes more sense to translate it as Judeans. And really the reason for that is that I think that the story is very much about a sort of ethno-political dimension of the illegitimacy of Herod's kingship and the legitimacy of Jesus's kingship as king of the Judeans. And so I think king of the Jews distracts from that ethno-political dimension.
0: That's really helpful, but that also makes me think, that when we're looking at a text like this we have to take account of the political tensions that were present at the time that the, that that the text was written but also it seems like in your answer you're paying attention to political dimensions that exist in our present day as well now when i make that observation does that feel right to you or would you say it in a different way
1: no i think that's i think that's mostly right i think that the debate over translating this as jews or judeans very much there's always politics involved in translation, right? There's always a question of, of or there, there is always that question. I think this, the argument that has been given in favor of translating Udioi as Jews has been put forward by a wonderful New Testament scholar named Adele Reinhardt, and others have made this argument as well. Hers is the one that I'm most familiar with and that I like the most. But she says that translating Eudiois as Judeans sort of serves to erase Jews from the story, And I would agree this is extremely problematic and something that we need to pay attention to. But that's why I also consider the term Udayoi, I don't think there's an easy solution to does it mean Jews or does it mean Judeans? I mean, Udayoi means Udayoi. But how we're translating that into English, I think, depends on the context.
0: What I really like about that answer is it brings into our question of translation and biblical hermeneutics what sometimes could be put on a pedestal as a kind of neutral practice. It's also a matter of ethics and hospitality, isn't it? Who are we allowing to be present with us in this text? Who are we excluding from this text? Now, when I say that to you, how does that feel?
1: No, I think that's great. And I think that definitely, I mean, I'll, I'll bring Professor Reinhart's comments in again. I think she says it very well. There is a sense, a very real and accurate sense, that Jews today do have a tie, a tie to the people in the first century who are being spoken about. So I do think that if you have a kind of blanket rule that says Udioi always means Judean, it can never mean Jew, or rather, it can never mean Jews. I think that's extremely problematic because I think it does say, well, we're, we are serving to erase or sever that connection, which is extremely problematic.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Eric M. Vanden Eichel. He's Associate Professor of Religion and the Forrest S. Williams Teaching Chair in the Humanities at Ferrum College. He's the author of But Their Faces Were Looking Up, author and reader in the Proto-Evangelium of James, and he's the general editor of the Journal for Interdisciplinary Biblical Studies. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Magi, who they were, how they've been remembered, and why they still fascinate. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Eric Vanden Eichel. He's Associate Professor of Religion and the Forrest S. Williams Teaching Chair in the Humanities at Ferrum College. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Magi, who they were, how they've been remembered, and why they still fascinate. One of the things that you say at certain points in your book, The Magi, that really fascinated me and I think is worth digging into is that you want to say that the Magi are literary characters, that they are written by Matthew as characters and they exist for us as characters. And I think that listeners might hear that and think they understand what you mean, but I want to give you a chance to really explain what you mean. Sure. Yeah. So the argument that I make in the book is really, the book really
1: just does endeavor to read them as literary characters, but the book is not an argument that is all they are. So I sort of want to, at the very start, I kind of bracket the question of the historical nature of the Magi, right? Because that's the question that I think a lot of people are very interested in. I'm sure that some people are going to pick up the book or are interested in that as well. But this question of, did they really exist, right? Did this story really happen? And so my position that I take in the book is, I mean, personally, in my own view, it is not a historical story, meaning that I don't think that there were real magi who came to Jerusalem and Bethlehem. But there's an important kind of footnote to that position, which is that I am not interested in trying to convince people that they were fictional. I just want to focus on what we have available to us. So if there were literal magi who arrived in Jerusalem and Bethlehem in the first century or around the first, around the start of the first century then that historical event is really not accessible to us we can't say anything about the people that it's about but what is accessible to us is Matthew's story and so my goal in the book is to say the question of historicity is interesting to some people but it's by far not the most interesting question you can ask of this text and so looking at it as, okay, let's look at these as characters, as fictional characters, and see what Matthew is up to. And I like to think that even if you have somebody who is approaching the Magi as historical people, and there are plenty of them out there, plenty of people who who believe that out there, this book is not designed to erode that belief at all. It's just simply to say, okay, well, but let's not pay
0: attention to that, and let's instead ask the question of meaning. Well, and from that, you begin to say, Because you're going to bracket out the historical question, and because we're looking at these as literary characters, that invites us—and this is going to be a phrase that's kind of a play on phrases that you use in the book, so feel free to give me a better phrase—but what I saw you doing again and again was inviting your readers to join you in what I would call hypothetical readings of the text and of these characters. Now, when I say that phrase, hypothetical readings, I want to make sure, first of all, I've got it right. And if I do have it right, what do you mean by generating hypotheses or hypo- hypothetical readings about these texts?
1: Now, I've used the terminology of hypothetical reader in my own scholarship before. I think it's a really, I mean, it certainly can be misused, but I think it's an extremely helpful construct. And when we're dealing with ancient texts when, and we're talking about what an ancient text meant... Or could have meant. We are always dealing with a with hypothetical readings, but also more importantly, with hypothetical readers. So when I say, "How would a reader have understood Matthew's text in the first century?" Well, I have to say, "Well, what does that reader look like? What do they know?" I'm already making assumptions about their identity based on the fact that you know, if I'm saying somebody is reading Matthew's text, I'm already situating them as one of the literary elites of the ancient world, and so are there readers in the first century who are reading Matthew's gospel? Absolutely. No question about it. But we have to speak of them as hypothetical readers because the readers that we are using to kind of reconstruct our our readings are constructs. They're constructs in our brain. Okay. So this is a reader, for example, this is somebody in the first century who can read and who has also read Herodotus, right? So that's a hypothetical reader. Are there readers who read Matthew and Herodotus? Maybe, sure, perhaps. But can I point to any in the first century? No, not with any certainty anyway. And so, so readers that we're dealing with in the ancient world in that capacity are always hypothetical readers. But then I do think that there's a sense that our readings are also hypothetical. And so when we think about readings and interpretations as hypotheses, we, you know, we pose a literary connection and we say, I wonder if Matthew is playing with this, or I wonder if one of Matthew's readers could be playing with this. And we explore that. And sometimes that we say, you know what, that hypothesis actually has some merit. And so that's the sort of thing that, let's say, makes it into a book. And then there are other hypotheses that we say we test something out. And we go, nah, "There's there's really anything here. And then those are the ones that kind of go away. And they're not, they might be proven incorrect, but they're still useful because they help us to understand what is Matthew not doing? What are Matthew's readers not probably seeing?
0: That's so helpful. And I appreciate you explaining and building out for us what you're thinking of when you use this term hypothesis or hypothetical reader or hypothetical reading. And what I want to stress to my listeners is as they read your book, The Magi, they're going to understand that you're inviting contemporary English readers to kind of join you in this hypothetical process, but you also, as I said in the beginning of our conversation, you lift the hood on the engine and you show that scholars also engage in these hypothetical processes. I wonder if you could say a word or two about that as well. Yeah, no, I think
1: we are, I, I think scholars often when you pick up a book, and I have this experience, if I can just be completely transparent with my own kind of way of existing in, the, in this world. I pick up scholarly monographs all the time, pick up these books and read them. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe anyone just sat down and wrote this. Cause there's books that just completely knock your socks off. And I think that it's important to remember that any sustained scholarly argument is the product of months, if not years, of just thinking and rethinking and honing, you know, and so when we look at I can point to my own my own folder of Magi notes that I've been keeping. I have a binder that is of just ideas and notes from 2014 when I started researching this book all the way up until the moment I sent the manuscript off and I finally sealed all those things up in a folder and shoved them in the corner. I haven't looked at them since, but that folder is filled with ideas that failed. And so, thoughts that I had that I said, Ooh, I bet this is going to be really interesting. And then I finally looked at the material and said, No, this is completely unsustainable what I've thought about here. And I think that any scholar who says that they haven't had that experience of having an idea and then coming to realize, for lack of a better word, how stupid it was, maybe that's too strong, right? But to be able to say, No, I had this idea, I thought about it, I researched it, and then I discovered, it was not a good idea or not a realistic idea. And I think that is what scholarship
0: is. And I think we have to be honest about that. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Eric Vanden Eichel. He's Associate Professor of Religion and the Forrest S. Williams Teaching Chair in the Humanities at Ferrum College. We're speaking today about his recent book, The Magi, who they were, how they've been remembered, and why they still fascinate. So I'm going to ask for your indulgence in this next question, because we've now set the stage, we've talked about the way in which Matthew could be using the Magi as literary characters. Earlier in the conversation, we talked about more contemporary texts like Taylor Swift's songs or Harry Potter. One thing that we can observe around these more contemporary texts is they stand on their own, but they also become a kind of cultural product that is used, sampled, and reused. And I'm thinking particularly about the phenomenon that we've come to call fan fiction, where it's not something that is canonically written by Taylor Swift, not something that is canonically written by J.K. Rowling. But people have felt the liberty to take up these characters and use them now in new narratives, in new combinations, in new ways. In the back half of your book, The Magi then this is my phrasing, not yours. I see you looking at what I would call magi fan fiction, the ways in which these literary characters that show up in Matthew have been elaborated, recombined, and added to. And first of all, when I make that comparison, I want to make sure, does that feel right to you? And if it does, can you tell us a little bit about how you've looked at some of the magi fan fiction?
1: No, I think fan fiction is a really helpful category And it's actually funny what happens after you publish a book on the Magi is that you all of a sudden become aware of even more fan fiction because the algorithms on Amazon are doing their thing. And I'm not joking about this. I have a whole Amazon wish list that's filled just with books on the Magi. And right now there's more and more coming out. But I found one the other day that was recommended to me on Amazon that was about like necromancy or something like that. And so it's wild, right? And so I'm looking at this going, well, maybe it, maybe a few years from now, we'll do an updated expanded edition and talk about these sorts of things because I'm, I am now aware. And just this morning I became aware of a theater production called we three Queens, which just looks like a hoot. Um, At any rate, no, I think fan fiction is a great way to think about what happens to these characters and the best kind of fan fiction, or at least there's people who actually do research on fan fiction and its applications to ancient literature, and I'm, I am not one of those who's well-versed enough, so if I'm misspeaking, please everyone forgive me. I imagine the best fan fiction is happening when you have a story that is just specific enough to give you kind of something to work with, but that leaves a bunch of gaps. And and Matthew's Magi story is a great example of a story that leaves a bunch of gaps. Where did they come from? Who were they? Why are they interested in Jesus? What's the star? All of this stuff. And from a very early period, all these unanswered questions, people start writing stories to answer them. So there's one of my favorite stories is a Syriac story called The Revelation of the Magi that I talk about in, in one of the chapters in this book. The Revelation of the Magi is a Text the the text of the story is longer than Matthew's Gospel, and it very detailed gives the story of the Magi from the mythical land of Sheer, which is where they come from, on the edges of the world, and they are these they're just really fascinating like ascetic figures, and they travel that the star appears to them in Sheer, but there's also this weird detail like well what is the star well in that's in that story it's actually Jesus himself the shape shifting but Jesus appears to them in the form of a star. And some of them look at it and see a baby. Some of them look at it and see an adult. And he says, follow me, you know, and so he sort of transports them across the deserts and makes food for them and levels mountains and all this kind of business. But, but yeah, it's a great example of fan fiction. Like what, what is this story? What are the details that Matthew's not giving us? Well, let's fill some of those in. And those are just the ancient examples. There's modern examples as well. If you look on Although well, the very last chapter of the book talks about some modern examples of stories about the actual first century Magi. And then if you look at um, Magi books, on again, on Amazon, <laughs> there's all sorts of these novels that are like popping up like the real story of the wise men and and they change little details here and there. But yeah, that process of fan fiction, which starts in the ancient world
0: is ongoing and it's still going on today. And now I want to shift from that. And I appreciate very much that answer and your indulgence in my even asking the question. Thank you. But now I want to I want to go a little bit more personally, if you're willing. Now, I recognize that you've just written an entire book giving your intellectual scope of who you think the Magi were and are. But as a person who is maneuvering in the world, who has emotions and may or may not have a spirituality, who may or may not celebrate some of the seasons that we're going into right now, Advent and Christmas, my question to you, if you're willing to engage it, is after all of this study and after all of this reflection, who are the Magi to you now, Eric van den Eichel? Wow, yeah, that's a,
1: it's, you know, a, a nice softball right here at the end, right? No, I think anyone who studies anything in any honest and real critical depth is going to change in their relationship to that, to that thing. And so I grew up in a religious household, United Methodist, and grew up reading the Bible in a certain way and went to college reading a Bible, reading the Bible in a certain way and have definitely, I guess, would say that I've changed quite a bit in the way that I approach the subject matter, which again, it's, I think anyone who's honestly, critically studying anything, if you have a, you know, uh, I think eye doctors probably see eyes very differently than the rest of us do. But I think also with that kind of different relationship towards something, I think we also have a way of growing in our appreciation of it. So studying things in depth can also, can also turn you off to things. But but for me personally, I think studying the magi and studying what people have done with the Magi and immersing myself in that story has given me a deeper appreciation, a different kind of relationship with the story, but also a deeper appreciation for the story and for this current season that story is about. And so who are the Magi for me? That question's complicated. When I think about the Magi, one of the things that I think about is the need for hospitality, I think, is something that I keep coming back to. And I don't think that this is Matthew's point. I don't think that Matthew's point is that we need to be hospitable to the stranger. But I think about the ways in which if if I'm reading into this story and thinking behind the scenes of this story, what would it be like to open your door and see strange figures at your door saying that they've come to see your baby. That's that's an uncomfortable situation potentially. And yet the story says that they presented their gifts. And so as I think about this sort of in my own spirituality, where it's at at the moment, I think about hospitality. I also think about seeking and I think about all of the things that we look for in life. And so in Matthew's story, they're looking for a king. But what are people looking for? And at this time of year, which can be so hard for some, what are people seeking for and how can we help them find it? I think that those are my takeaways for me today about when I think about the Magi.
0: Professor Eric Vanden Eichel, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned reading monographs and sometimes the monographs will knock your socks off. I just want to say your book, The Magi, knocked my socks off. I so enjoyed reading it. I learned so much from it. It's a book I'm going to come back to, but it's also a book I'm going to share with my students, and it's a book that I think would be wonderful to share in a time like this as we're moving from Advent into Christmas. I would encourage all of my listeners to take a look at this book, to pick it up, to read it, to learn from it. Thank you so much for the multiple years it took to research and think about this book. Thank you especially for writing it, but also thank you for taking time to speak about it with me and my listeners today.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure, and I appreciate all of those kind
0: words. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Dr. Eric M. Vanden Eichel. He's Associate Professor of Religion and the Forrest S. Williams Teaching Chair in the Humanities at Ferrum College. He's the author of But Their Faces Were Looking Up, author and reader in the Proto-Evangelium of James and he's the general editor of the Journal for Interdisciplinary Biblical Studies. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, The Magi, Who They Were. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keejit. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio.